tūtawa mai ronga, tūtawa mai raro, tūtawa mai roto, tūtawa mai waho, kia tauai ta mauri tū, ta mauri ora, ki te katoa haume huie, tai ki tēnā tātou, kua whakaraweka mai raro i te tūanui o tānei whikipiripiri, ka aku nui, ka aku rahi, ka aku rangatira, tēnā kautau katoa. He mihi ki ngā hunga mate, kua wehi atu i te ao, kua tūtaki ki te pō, haere, haere, haere atu rā. E riritaki wāna ngā whakaaro ki te ao wairua, ki te pūtahitanga o rehua, tau mai rā, tau mai rā. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to you all. Um, I'm Guy and Espinner. My day job is with Radio New Zealand. Tonight I'm hosting this panel on coasts and climate change. Will the retreat be forced or planned? That's what we're discussing tonight, climate change. One of the biggest issues facing New Zealand, but how prepared are we for the hazards that this will bring to our coasts, home of course to many of our communities and to much of our infrastructure? How do we respond to this and who will pay for it? Well, to talk about this with us tonight, our Associate Professor Janet Stevenson. Welcome to you tonight. Now, uh, Janet is a social scientist who leads the Climate Adaptive Communities Project in the Deep South National Science Challenge, researching how communities and councils are responding to flooding and sea level rise. She's been the director of the, of the Centre for Sustainability since 2011 and her academic background is in sociology, planning, and human geography. So welcome to you, Janet. Dr. Ben Franz Hudson is with us. He's a legal scholar with a background in legal practice. His expertise includes private property theory, land law, natural resource and resource management law. He's also an associate member of the Property Law Section of the New Zealand Law Society and in 2018 was appointed to its Property Law Reform Panel. Thank you for being with us tonight, Ben. Dr Carolyn Orcheston is with me. She is a Research Fellow and Deputy Director of Otago University's Centre for Sustainability. Her research focuses on building a more resilient New Zealand, transforming how we prepare for and mitigate against disasters, including earthquakes, floods and climate change. So welcome to you, Carolyn. Thanks for joining us tonight. Also with me is Professor Lisa Ellis, who teaches ethics, environmental philosophy, politics and economics at the Department of Politics at Otago University. She's the author of Kant's Politics, which is Provisional Theory for an Uncertain World back in 2005, and Provisional Politics, Kantian Arguments in a Policy Context in 2008. She's also a political theorist interested in collective action and democratic decision-making, which we'll be talking about tonight in this context. So a big round of applause for our panellists tonight. If I could start um, with you, actually, Janet, at, at this end, let's start with the magnitude of this problem. What are we facing right now in 2019? What we're facing is an incrementally worsening um, scenario for our climate, and that is, is going to be evident in a number of different ways. One is a gradually increasing sea level one is um, increasing storm events so that the, the wave action on, on your coast is going to get stronger and more powerful, um, increasing cyclones coming through to New Zealand very likely, and also increasing storm events, so, so more frequent, really heavy rain in, in, in certain places. And, and for coastal areas, it is the combination of those um, risks or hazards when they come together um, that is when you're going to get really, really serious impacts. And many parts of New Zealand are low-lying and in floodplains, and many parts of New Zealand are going to be at risk from this. It's getting worse, and we're already seeing the effects in many places. And where are those places, Ben? Uh, I think across the country. Um, there are examples such as uh, South Dunedin, uh, which is a fairly heavily densely populated area, which is had some terrible flooding over the last few years. In the news recently has been a small community called Matata uh, in the Bay of Plenty, which uh, suffered from a fairly devastating uh, landslip 
uh, early in the 2000s, people uh, rebuilt there on the understanding that an engineering solution would prevent the problem from happening again. Turns out there isn't an engineering solution and there is great risk to loss of life for that community. Uh, and the question at the moment is, what do you do? And the most recent development was that the local district council and the Department of Internal Affairs have agreed a package of about $15 million for voluntary buyouts. And I guess the question, if that doesn't work as well, uh, what do you do with the people who refuse to take the buyout? And we're talking tens of thousands of properties in the medium term that are at risk from the combined effects of climate change, um, certainly over the next century and already in many places sooner. Mm. We have this enormous problem in Matata with only a few dozen properties and we need to get our minds around the scope. It's going to affect absolutely everyone because everyone shares the quality of being a New Zealander. And that's the thing, we're an island nation and we love living by our coast. I think 65% of our population and infrastructure lies within five kilometres of the coast. So we have a high exposure to changes at the coast, the coastal hazards and sea level rise. And if we look at the magnitude of it, there was a Ministry of Environment report saying 130,000 New Zealanders and about 43,000 houses at risk of sea level rise. That gives you some idea of the scale of the problem. I guess you're looking at when this is actually going to happen, but from what you're saying, this is happening right now. That's right. I mean, the impacts will be differential across different communities. Think of Granity. It's been in the media lately, just a small place on the West Coast that's being eroded away, essentially, by the changing sea. Uh, South Dunedin is one of the greater um, urban areas at risk, but there are many examples right around the coast of our communities at risk. And what are we doing about it? What are the responses from... Well, let's start with local government, because that's where it probably hits first, isn't it? I'm speaking here from a survey that we have recently carried out with, with local authorities in the more exposed areas of New Zealand, and by exposed I mean um, likely to be um, faced by flooding and sea level rise in the years to come. And what has emerged from that is a really high level of nervousness from councils because there is a great deal of uncertainty about, first of all, the law, who is responsible for what. There's a great deal of uncertainty about what those impacts might be and what it might cost councils in the long term to start to deal with that, even just from an infrastructure perspective. So roads, sewage systems, boat ramps, recreational areas, all under threat. Um, and also there's a great deal of nervousness about how do you even start to talk to your communities about this problem because it's, it's incredibly emotional to be told that your property may well be under threat in, say, the coming decades um, because we have a certain sense of identity and, and connection to place and once that starts becoming shaken, as we know from the Christchurch earthquakes, it can really destabilise people. So it's a, it's a huge issue for local authorities for, for those and many other reasons. So what is the template that they're using? You mentioned matata. How did the process work? I think it's pretty clear that we don't have good legal frameworks for dealing with the challenges that are coming. So from a land use planning perspective, the, the primary tool is the Resource Management Act, uh, which was not designed with these kinds of uh, problems uh, in contemplation. Uh, New Zealand has historically had a focus on uh, managing hazards as opposed to managing uh, risk uh, uh, and the risk from the hazards. And I think uh, although managed retreat is an easy and nice phrase, what we're really talking about is how do you manage the risk from climate change. So we're, we're sort of on the back foot, although risk-based uh, planning is becoming more mainstream. Um, but then you've got broader questions around who should make the decision, uh, when the decision is made, how does it get paid for? And at the moment, I don't think we have uh, good answers to any of those questions. And as Janet was intimating, people don't always want to leave. You can understand that. Even in the Christchurch earthquake red zone, there were many um, people who said, look, and the evidence was there in front of their eyes, but they did not want to leave. So what do you do? Can you force people to leave in those situations? Technically, yes. Uh, the Crown can acquire people's property compulsarily. Um, we see that reasonably often with things like the Public Works Act. It tends to be a last uh, resort. Um, there isn't a bespoke 
piece of legislation at the moment which would fit uh, in this context. There's uh, a question about whether or not you can do it under the Resource Management Act, which is something I've been looking at recently, and the answer is possibly where the risk is fairly high and fairly uh, immediate, but it might be very difficult because what you are talking about is uh, telling people that they can't live in their property anymore. It's and much better not to tell them. It's better for people to make these decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so recently in Hawke's Bay, they had a, a community-level decision-making exercise where people spent about a year going to meetings and talking to engineers and talking to each other and making decisions about what sorts of solutions they would apply when things got worse. And they were operating under conditions of deep uncertainty. We don't know how the West Antarctic ice sheet is going to behave, um, but we do know that existing emissions are locked in, and so that we know the general trend, even if not the timing. And when people get together and make collective decisions about what they want to see in their community, I think it's much less frightening than the prospect, like you were talking about, of somebody telling you that you have to leave your property because of a threat. Um, it's something that we all need to um, think about, I think, doing more of in the future and more generally, not just in a few areas, not just in mm. Hawke's Bay. Mm. Um, but, but Lisa, I think yeah. in Hawke's Bay, the question wasn't really, do people leave or not? It was about, do we invest in seawalls? Well, that, that's that right. It should have been, they should have addressed a broader range of solutions. So people said at the end of that process, we put managed retreat into the too hard box. And that's not surprising, given the fact that it was the first big such exercise and that people were sort of primed to think about it from a personal property perspective. Um, but in fact, um, it's uh, certainly something that communities ought to be considering because people have value that's shared with the community. It's not simply a matter of private property. One of the reasons that we're so place-based that we value our private property and our homes is that we have social capital with each other. And these, uh, if a, a community is no longer able to withstand the combined effects of climate change, it would be far better for people to decide to preserve their social capital together um, than to be isolated and frightened. People are also going to be thinking, frankly, about their economic capital as well, though, aren't they? And they, under those circumstances that we're talking about, wouldn't be able to, say, sell a home. What, right. say, what say they felt they needed the money, had life changed, whatever it was, are you going to be able to sell that property? What happens in those circumstances? Mm. Well, I, I guess it's a hugely challenging area, very complex in terms of insurability and, and the long-term prospects for that. And that's why I think it's absolutely essential that councils really front foot this is issue. Right now, there's a lot of fear from the councils we spoke with about how to engage on an issue like this, because in a disaster risk reduction context, and I work often with earthquakes and those sorts of acute uh, events, we have time before an event to prepare to reduce our risk before an event, and then we respond and we recover. But with, a, with climate change, we know for sure that there will be rising seas, so th that's predictable in a sense. So the councils need to begin the conversation now with communities at risk. And I fear that often we react when acute events happen. And in South Dunedin, that's exactly what happened. We had a lot of really difficult conversations happening immediately after that flood. And the mayor was outspoken about the prospect of managed retreat. At that time, the community is hugely vulnerable. It's been through an, a significant event. And that's the last time, the, the last... Um, it's not when you should be having that conversation. It should have been happening before that. So I think right now the councils need to be brave, need to start admitting and being honest that they don't know all the answers, but the time has come for having conversations. And what is the capacity of local government to deal with this? I mean, how prepared are they? Are the expertise and the resources there? Well, they're saying no, and, and, and part of the problem is, is that there is a lack of clarity about, about who should be responsible between local authorities and, and government, and also between regional councils and, and district and city councils. There's also a lack of clarity. And, and I think there's, at the moment there's a bit of wheel spinning going on, and, and people are waiting for the, the Climate Change Act to be enacted and the, the, the uh, Climate Change Commission and all of the work that's going to follow from that because they're going to have a certain degree of responsibility for assisting. New Zealand and its long-term planning for adaptation as well as mitigation. Well, I was going to ask about that. What is there a role for the for the um, Climate Change Commission in this? 
And if so, what would it be? Well, one of the first steps that's going to happen even before the Commission is, is picking up this role is, is a national risk assessment. Um, so this, this national risk assessment is, is expected to, to look right across New Zealand and, and evaluate what are the risks that we're facing from climate change and, and trying to assess those both in a, in a, in a financial and, a, and, I guess, a social um, sense. So what, what are the implications of this? So that, that, is, one of, that is a very early step in after the, the Climate Change Amendment Act has been um, enacted. Okay, well, I want to move on to insurance in a second because I think that's a, a pretty interesting area. But it's not only homes, is it? It's infrastructure, as mm, you said yeah. um, in your initial comments. I mean, what do you do with, with roads? What do you do with other key infrastructure that potentially could be underwater? Exactly. We have a huge network of roads, water, uh, critical infrastructure around our coast. And councils are grappling with how to ensure how, how they might have to relocate over time some of that infrastructure and it's a hugely costly exercise I think the, the figure was something like 32 billion it was. dollars to, to deal with some of those issues at the coast so where does that money come from? Yeah. To that we could add their obligations because one of the outcomes of the uh, red zone in Christchurch and the people who chose to stay there was that the court said that the council had an obligation to continue supplying them with at least water Mm. Uh, so, and if you've got a water pipe that's got to go that far, you may as well have everything else. So the, the costs could be huge if local government uh, is required to continue providing infrastructure to communities, particularly if that community is on a hill and safe, but the road getting there runs along the coast. And I think we can probably all think of communities that are like that. And there's an equity issue also that comes with that because you wouldn't want your capacity to deal with climate change to depend on how well-resourced your particular local council is. Well, we think about, um, you know, coastal properties. Often we think about higher-income people who have got properties by the coast, but that's not always the case, is it? No, it certainly isn't. In fact, there are plenty of vulnerable people uh, living in the coast or living in low-lying areas. There are a lot of people um, uh, pursuing agriculture in low-lying areas who are going to be affected by sea level rise and groundwater intrusion and all of the other things that come along with um, climate change. We have to worry that we're, um, if we don't adjust our regulatory framework, we're going to be transferring risk to the most vulnerable. You're listening to RNZ and an Otago University Symposium, recorded in Auckland with me, Guy and Espiner. Today, four experts in climate change at the university are looking at the New Zealand coastline and pondering whether our retreat from it will be forced or planned. We're joined by Associate Professor Janet Stevenson and Dr. Carolyn Orcheston from the Centre for Sustainability. With them are Dr. Ben France Hudson from the Faculty of Law and Professor Lisa Ellis from the Department of Politics. Is there a degree of complacency? I mean, we're still subdividing this land. We're still selling it. I was speaking to someone who's said their father had bought a holiday home that he could only drive to in, in low tide. Yes, and serious, I, serious I wouldn't story. blame the father, right? You can't expect people to behave according to rules that we haven't made yet. And he doesn't know what the risks are. He might know a little bit about the physical risk, but the uncertainty about the social obligations for things like compensation and providing services, if we could send a clear signal um, that it's, uh, you can no longer expect to have risky coastal development supported, compensated, then people would be able to make better decisions. Well, aren't we going to have to pretty urgently set some of these rules in place? Because you can't just be selling, developing, and allowing people to buy if you know, if your modelling shows that this is going to be underwater. I mean, th th that's setting people up for disaster, is it not? I couldn't agree with you more. And the logic then goes, well, you said that I could live there, and I lived there, and I've suffered loss, therefore you owe me. Um, and so regardless of what local government responsibility is, there's a risk that some clever lawyer, and there are cases like this happening overseas, is going to say, well, this is like the leaky home crisis. You, s you said my windows were fine, and they weren't. So pay me some money, please. Uh, and the logic, to my mind, is exactly the same. You said I could live here, uh, and actually you were wrong, 
therefore uh, you owe me. Okay. Yeah, and, so and the danger there is is once some crafty lawyer and his very wealthy client have got a decision through the court, then that sets a precedent. Mm. If we set precedents through decision-making, that then puts everybody else into a situation where there are unfair outcomes of this collectively. And well, we that's already happening, that, isn't yes, it, with the red the, zone in Christchurch? Yes. Well, and I think the urgency yeah. here is that the precedents are being made yeah. because New Zealand has got a history of bailing people out when things go wrong, whether it was the Napier earthquake or our accident compensation scheme, um, uh, EQC, all of these are trends and you look at the red zone in Christchurch uh, and uh, although Matatar is an extreme example um, uh, and my understanding of it is just from what I've read so I don't I haven't spoken to anybody directly involved but again it looks like the solution there is to pay money. But when you think of this scope, that's just not going to be equitable or even practicable. Mm -hmm. I think we have some examples from overseas that show that you can overcome those legacies of expectation. So if you look at the UK, um, in uh, cases of villages that have been um, devastated by coastal erosion, there's been a lot of uh, centrally provided compensation. But when they um, looked at their risk as a whole in the context of climate change, they started drawing lines. And now if you've built new property after a certain date, you cannot expect um, to be even be insurable or have subsidized insurance, much less be compensated. It's possible there. It's possible and then here. You really need the people in charge to stick with it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that's a brave move. Yeah. Why? Why is it not on the Lim report, for example? Now. <laughs> well, seriously. I mean, if if I'm buying a property, one of the the first and basic things that you, you would do is what are the risks of this property? Mm, I mean, yeah. we have it for wind, for example. If you've bought a house in Wellington ever, um, you, you might find you're Look, in a high wind It's zone. a transfer of risk to the most vulnerable not to put the hazard on the limb. Mm. Uh, if because you're buying it without the the full knowledge, yeah. we need to have a uniform rule so that you don't um, suffer disproportionate disadvantage if you live in a forward-thinking council. And if you move to a council that was more retrograde, you would be relatively advantaged. That's not an acceptable s position for any of us. And there's no legal impediment. Uh, it's all political impediments. The one case on it, uh, the council won. Uh, and then there were various things we happened. Is that the Kapiti uh, The Kapiti, uh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. So what had happened was lines had been drawn on, on limbs for properties along the coast, and the owners objected and went to the High Court, and the High Court said, yes, you can draw a line, but don't draw such a big dark black one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> come away with, uh, you know, come up with a different way of representing that that's essentially less scary. Uh, and then um, the council went away, there were various changes, and the council decided not to pursue that um, policy, uh, but there was nothing to stop them from putting those lines on the map had it been drawn in a sufficiently careful way. And of course people do get very sensitive about a loss of value of their assets. In Wellington, for example, with tsunami risk, the council made the decision to draw blue lines across uh, areas where, the, where people needed to get beyond in order to be safe from tsunami, so the blue line project. And when that was proposed, the people living in those suburbs were deeply <coughs> concerned and, and quite forthright about the fact they didn't want those blue lines there because it would affect their property prices. But in, in reality, when those lines went in, it was a short-term sort of uncertainty, and then people began to live with them, and there was no effect on property. And everybody's better off because you have less uncertainty. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about insurance, because it's interesting in this context, isn't it? Usually insurance is the company taking a, uh, taking a bet on whether something will happen or not and how much risk they're prepared to bear. But in a way, this is not like that, is it? Because for most of us, it's a certainty. Everybody has this touching belief that we've behaved rightly over the years. We've always paid our insurance premiums. We've maintained our property. We ought to be covered. But we need to remember that insurance contracts are 12 months long. Okay, but, but if I'm an insurance company, right, why would I insure a property knowing for certain that the science is saying there's a 90% chance that this property is going to be underwater or good as underwater in 50 years, 30 years. You well, that's exactly right. You I mean, the, insur <laughs> the Insurance Council has already made it clear that, that in cases where climate impacts are certain and sure, 
they have they have no issue with the rising of of, of insurance costs, and eventually, if it gets too bad, actually making places uninsurable. They, they will pull insurance. Um, and and that's, that's been very much out there. There have been statements um, from the Insurance Council about this. And, and the issue there is not just the loss of insurance, but it is that your bank will require you to be insured in order to loan you money. And so if your insurance is pulled, then your bank is probably going to renege well. That well, that pulls the plug on the whole community right there, doesn't yes. it? Yes, but it does. I think it, and I think particularly the more vulnerable. I think it's, I mean, I'm not an insurance expert, but I've had conversations with insurers, and I think it's fair to say New Zealand, in the global context of insurance, in terms of the reinsurance market who funds our insurance company companies, um, they spread the risk across the globe. So they have, uh, they insure lots of different countries with different levels of risk. New Zealand is a high-risk country, but it's a small fish in a big pond in terms of insurance payouts. And so I think... Insurers have, from my sense, they have a moral obligation to remain in the market for as long as they possibly can. I don't think if that next week they're going to suddenly pull out, but I suspect in the longer term they're going to have to keep looking at the way moral they do Moral obligation and insurance companies. <laughs> <laughs> Tim what Grafton could possibly would be very go wrong? With me saying that. Um, I don't want to be too cynical about this, and um, you know, um, but. Are they going to fulfil that? Well, uh, that, the conversation we've just had is pointing to a sort of a chaos situation where no one is able to get insurance. And what happens beyond that? Well, I don't know. I I think it's fascinating, but it's kind of frightening as well. I mean, what is going to happen? Is there a, you know, is it going to be... Muggins, the taxpayer, who picks up the bill again. Uh, well, they nego- the the insurers the st- negotiate with local governments to try to reduce risk. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Flockton Basin, the insurers were active, working with local government to try to make it safer and more insurable. And I think one thing that New Zealand ought to be thinking about is that if we are a larger group of us, not just a neighborhood or a small part of a city, but everybody is negotiating with insurance about um, collectively reducing risk in order to reduce the risk of loss. La- locks of insurability, then we're much more likely to get a good deal. If they can pick us off neighbourhood by neighbourhood, we're not going to be in a position of advantage. Can I ask a naive question, perhaps, which is, why can't we just build walls? Why can't we build seawalls? Look at the Netherlands. Well, I, I, I mean, obviously, the Netherlands coast is fairly small in extent. We are a big coastal island, you know, a, an extensive coast. It's one of the longest coasts for an, any country in the world, I think. It's the ninth longest in ninth the world. Ninth longest for a country our size. So we couldn't possibly afford to build a wall long enough <laughs> to protect our I can our think of a politician who promised in a, a wall. The other thing I think you need to <coughs> think about is that Kaikoura gets all the sharks and whales because a kilometre off the coast or 100 metres off the coast is the continental shelf. So uh, it's not the North Sea. The the Thames barrier blocks something that's not very deep. Um, It's completely not possible to have something like the Thames barrier in a place like Wellington Harbour. And the other thing to think about with regard to seawalls is seawalls don't make the sea's energy dissipate. They move the sea's energy to everywhere that doesn't have a seawall. If you have a seawall, and you put it somewhere to protect the property. Why did you move there? You moved there because you enjoy the beach. If you build the seawall, you will lose the beach. Right? So in the long run, the seawalls are really a last-ditch measure. And at that, they're only temporary, and they're frighteningly expensive. So is retreat the only option? Certainly not. There are all sorts of different um, uh, solutions. You can rebuild wetlands. There are uh, uh, sort of relatively soft solutions. You can talk about how you build your houses. There are a number of different things we can do. For example, you can raise the floors of new build. um, Or um, it's possible to have houses that float. So if you build four rods on your box-shaped house and you have your house go up and down in it and you have even something like closed-cell foam will work, your house can float up and down. It depends. You can have um, a house with a basement that's attuned to flooding. So in the Rhine Delta, a lot of people have their electricals only on the first floor, and everything on the ground floor is movable. Um, there are many ways to adjust to this threat that do not include managed retreat, um, but are not as as um, temporary, expensive, and collectively irrational as seawalls. And that that's already happening. Yeah, the the count. There are councils already changing building codes so that new builds do have to be elevated 
to a certain level, and that's happening in Dunedin now. So anything that's built now has to have, you know, enough uh, sort of, uh, yeah, enough below it to, to mitigate that risk. I agree. My slight caution is that you're not necessarily mitigating the risk if the hazard is increasing. So a lot of people think that they are holding the line by not allowing the risk to get worse by having raised floors and all of that kind of thing. But at some point, if the hazard is actually going to be such that all of those measures are insufficient to address the problem, then uh, they've prolonged uh, something but haven't actually solved the, the risk. Yeah, we have which, so which may require, in some circumstances, uh, leaving. So, so the, the Ministry for the Environment um, is recommending a particular approach to this problem that they call Dynamic Adaptive Pathways Planning, or DAP for short. And, and what, what this is suggesting is, is that each council, and a few councils in New Zealand are already starting to do this, looks, looks forward, taking into account that the, the huge uncertainties that, that they might be facing, say, over the next 70 or 50 years, and, and together with the community says, okay, if things get this bad, then maybe this is a solution that we can put in place for now, which might be, for example, increasing the size of our stormwater pipes to, to cater for, for bigger floods. It might be putting in big pumps. Um, but at some point in time, things are going to get so worse, and we know they will, that we will need to adjust to another path. And so that next path we need to identify ahead of time so that we will know that when this trigger point is reached, which might be that we get you know, five floods a year, we are going to take action number B, which might be to, to shift a number of houses back from the coast, or it might be to... Um, I have no idea. This is not saying there is a, a, a deliberate and certain pathway that we're going to follow, but that we're going to keep these flexible adaptations um, um, possible in the future, but we have to keep them in mind as we develop this area in the future so that we know that we might need to shift course as we go, go, go ahead. What are the treaty implications of this? I mean, uh, Wahitapu sites, Marae on the East Coast, for example... Vast tracts of Māori land that could be affected by this. How does that play out in terms of the treaty process? Well, I, th I think those obligations could be profound. And uh, the one small example is that the Crown, under the principles of the treaty, has a duty of active protection. So what does that mean in this space? It, it could mean that the Crown needs to be working with those communities now to be planning for what happens. Uh, and it could be that the response when the land, for argument's sake, can't be uh, occupied anymore, um, those uh, people are found equivalently important land somewhere else. Um, and it could also be that if the Crown is not thinking about these things at the moment, in the fullness of time, the Waitangi Tribunal may in fact say that that was a breach of the treaty. Um, so I think that's a very complex area in and of itself. And, 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 and here we are already thinking very hard about this and if, if the place that is yours and has been yours for, for many, many generations is now disappearing into the sea and be, becoming washed away then, and the bones of your ancestors are, are being affected, then that is, that is hugely emotionally devastating. And, and similarly to Lisa's comment earlier about councils being better or worse resourced, iwi have similar inequities and, and if you look at some of the better resourced iwi like Ngaitahu, they're really proactive, they have a climate change uh, adaptation strategy and they're being very uh, proactive and almost opportunistic about the possibilities being presented by climate change for example land banking in areas where they think the climate's going to change to make agriculture of certain kinds much more uh, you know, possible and so they're currently doing that, they are looking at moving marae from the coast and in doing so, building um, the Runanga's ability to, you know, look after the ahika, the people that are keeping the home fires burning in those marae. Uh, and so they're really proactive in terms of tackling climate change into the future. This conversation, recorded in Auckland, features speakers well qualified to discuss our attitude to the coastline in a time of climate change. We're joined by Associate Professor Janet Stevenson and Dr Carolyn Orcheston from the Centre for Sustainability. 
With them are Dr. Ben France Hudson from the Faculty of Law and Professor Lisa Ellis from the Department of Politics. I'm Guyan Espiner in the chair for this RNZ recording made in association with the University of Otago. We started being with uh, Matata and you were using that as a, as a current example of recent times. I was looking at NIWA scientist Rob Bell who was talking about this and he, he was saying that we're all watching Matata as an example of extinguishing existing use rights. What does that effectively mean? So under the Resource Management Act, if you have been doing something uh, on your property, say for example you've been running it as a, an optometry clinic or something, and then there's a, a new rule under a district plan that says uh, people who are running those sorts of small businesses in uh, uh, suburban areas have to provide car parks, then that rule will not apply to you because you have an existing use and uh, territorial authorities, district councils, have no power to extinguish uh, those existing uses. Uh, and so the reason for this is to protect people from the somewhat arbitrary nature of planning, uh, but also it's a recognition of um, property rights to the extent they're still important under the Resource Management Act. However, regional councils, particularly in the context of things like hazard management, do have the ability to extinguish existing uses. So uh, within their power is the ability to say people who are running these businesses uh, need to have car parks and you would have to provide them. So in the Matatar example, the Whakatane District Council uh, realised that there was this risk and decided that it had to do something and it took a two-strand approach. One was to try and negotiate for people to leave, which is a process that's ongoing. But the sort of other option was to try and put a rule in the Bay of Plenty Regional Council uh, regional plan that would say that from a point around 2020, uh, residential activity on that land would be prohibited, which would have the effect of moving people uh, or requiring them to move, possibly without any compensation at all. So of course, not only did that give rise to procedural questions about whether you could be kind of dangling the carrot while waving a very big stick, um, but also gives rise to the question of whether you can do that under the Resource Management Act. Can you move people away from where they live and not pay compensation? And what's the answer? Uh, the answer is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the, the answer is that that's the kind of question for which we have a Supreme Court. Uh, uh, the, um, there's one particular section I won't bore you with, but I think that my analysis of it is that if the risk is sufficiently high and fairly uh, imminent, then it's possible that you could do it. But, but there would be very big arguments for but, but, but Ben, I think what this is suggesting is that the law is not fit for purpose. I couldn't agree more. Yes, uh, yes. And, so, and so, I think so it doesn't make sense to, to, to let it be battled out on an individual case like Matatar. It's much better for a review of the law to say how can we make law that is going to enable us to make really good decisions without inequitable outcomes. I think so, which is why we need to be thinking about it now, because if you think about the foreshore and seabed case, Nati Arpa, where the Court of Appeal basically said it's possible that there's some Maori customary land to the foreshore in New Zealand, which, uh, uh, and they might be able to claim it, which unleashed a whole raft of legislation resulting in the Crown being vested with everything. Uh, so imagine the effect of a court case that says a regional council can order you to leave your land and not pay compensation. I, I don't think the Crown wants to have that argument. I think they would be better to be thinking about it in advance. Because law can provide good frameworks, but you have to think about it first. So who's suggesting that, if anyone, that, that you could be forced to leave without compensation? Well, I think that's the effect of a regional council promulgating a rule that says residential activity is prohibited. Because you don't get compensated uh, for normal planning rules. And in fact, the resource management tax says... But though. If I've bought it in good faith under a certain set of laws, then you've just changed the goalposts on me. Yes. <laughs> Which is why uh, you will have a very big argument about whether it's possible. 
uh, and under the current legislation it looks like it, it might be. But I think it would be much better to pause now, or not even pause, just get on with it and decide what sorts of uh, remedies could we provide to people in these circumstances? Do we provide mm. anything? Um, yeah. I mean, my question is, which government's going to be brave enough to try and develop a whole new raft of legislation which is dealing with these climate-related issues? It does need to happen from central government because the scope is so large. In a single case, it doesn't seem devastating, but the effect of uh, uh, mass compensation according to market value, dollar for dollar, would be that ordinary people working two or three jobs uh, would end up compensating people for their second beach houses. It's not an outcome most people would call equitable. Therefore, it calls for a national level decision what about how we're going to though? trade off. What does that mean? What would that look like? It, it would, um, well, you can see in the UK um, or a, a worst case in the United States, there have been national level decisions about what kind of country are we? Are we the kind of country that exhibits solidarity every time somebody is damaged by natural hazard? If that's true, that means we're totally fine with the moral hazard and encouraging people to do risky local development because we always want to help each other. If, if instead we're a more individualistic country and we want pe people to bear their own risks, then we should make that clear so that people don't over-invest in risky places hoping that they'll use their political power to get bailed out. Well, what we need is clarity. Let's have a look at some of the things that we do now in analogous kinds of situations, I guess they're not totally, but I'm thinking of things like the um, EQC, right? So we have a big fund, or ACC, because we know we have work accidents. So what do we do? We set up a, a big fund that invests in equities, it tries to make enough money to pay out when those things happen. Are we heading towards a situation where we need a climate change sovereign wealth fund that can pay out in uh, future? I'm really glad you mentioned that because we haven't yet mentioned a really important issue with regard to this, and that's intergenerational justice. Right, so all of the examples we've talked about so far, some poor slob is bearing the entire burden of the industrial age on their backs um, as the person who might have their property use extinguished, um, and uh, that's obviously unfair. But it's also obviously unfair to transfer the whole risk of uh, climate change to the future and to leave our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren with an enormous burden that we did nothing to mitigate. So I do think we're obliged um, to think about spreading this risk not only across the country but across generations. The product... Activity Commission recently said that helping councils adapt to climate change was at the top of its list of urgent actions. That was great that they said that. Mm -hmm. um, at the in the same report, they said, is it possible that we could just allow people to assume all of the risk associated with their property, which is a terrifying and ridiculous question. We tend to focus on property, but, but actually a lot of people um, in, in areas like South Dunedin, for example, don't actually own property. They live there, they rent, and, and they live there because it's flat and accessible and it's a community that they can, they can live comfortably in. But if it is their landlords who are going to make the decisions about investing in that property, and one of the fears I have is that with incremental impacts from climate change, for example, and lowering property prices and maybe higher insurance costs, then, then landlords are much less likely to be investing in those properties and keeping them up. And so what we will get is a gradual development of a ghettoisation of, of areas where, where there's a lot of rental properties or even just a few. So, so part of what we've got to think about is not just the rights and needs of property owners, but also the rights and needs of other people who live in those areas who could be equally or even worse impacted. And... I mean, South Dunedin, some of those communities must be getting to the point where you're thinking about whether it is sustainable to live there long term. I mean, we've had major flooding several times in the last few years there. Yeah, um, I, I, th I, think, I think we should not be using them, South Dunedin, as, as a place that we continually talk about with, with climate change 
um, with a climate change hat on. There are, there are many places in New Zealand that are being impacted in, in a whole variety of ways from, from climate. Um, South Dunedin is, has got a very complex set of issues um, and there's a lack of clarity about exactly what the trajectory of impact might be. We know, we know there are impacts, but I would, I would be very loath to say that they are Oh, for sure, the they're not affected. alone. Hutt City Council, um, yes. they've reported that large parts of Petone could be underwater by, OK, by the turn of the century. Yes, it's a long way away, but, you know, I mean, th this is real, real stuff for people who are buying houses in the future for our children and grandchildren, isn't it? So what are these councils doing about this? We need to make sure that we're not making these decisions simply based on uh, market value. These communities have real value. And it, it would be a terrible mistake for us to say places like South Dunedin, um, we need to talk about managed retreat and wealthy cities with a big concentration of value. Of course, we're going to talk about hard engineering solutions. People who aren't property owners have real measurable sociocultural value that the community seeks to protect. Mm. And I'd like also just to say that, that and Caroline started with this, is, is that coasts are, are actually part of all of our identities. We, we go there as children, we catch fish there, we play on the beach, uh, we take our boats out on the water, we camp there. We have huge memories, probably all of us, ab ab about the beaches and places that we enjoyed. For your children and grandchildren, that could be really, really different. Um, and so part of what concerns me about, about these impacts is actually an erosion of, of kind of an identity about what it is to be a Kiwi. In fact, because our coast could look really, really different in 50 years' time. So um, it's not just a financial issue. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very complex issue that doesn't just affect the people who live in those places and own properties in those places now. It affects every one of us as, as New Zealanders. I'm going to open this up for questions uh, very shortly, and I see we've already got a couple of hands going up, which is great. But I, I did want to... Not in a naive way, but I, I wanted to finish with some degree of what we can do, and I didn't want it to be only a, a negative conversation, because it's frightening in some ways, isn't it? This is scary stuff. So what are the hints of optimism? What are the things that we can do? How can we... If at all be positive about this? I, I mean, I think I see so many positives in the work that we've been doing recently with really strong communities who are seeking to coalesce around climate adaptation, but also a number of other issues to build resilience in their communities. And it might be that they would like to build their identity through festivals or food or energy, you know, uh, transforming their communities into the future. And there are really strong voices in some of these communities. They're positive, uh, strong leaders, and they're seeking agency so that they're a voice for talking to councils. Yeah, there are as many opportunities as there are possible policies. And I think one thing that we need to think about is the opportunity cost of not doing anything. The status quo is certainly not perfect. With our current uh, dependence on automobility, something that everybody in Auckland understands, isolates us from each other and uh, makes it more difficult for communities to have a say in the outcomes that affect them. It would be wonderful for us to undertake these changes around climate change and also get stronger ties to each other other, less isolation from each other. We wouldn't be as, as fat, sick, and tired of commuting. There are many co-benefits that go along with all of this adaptation work. The law is playing catch-up, but the law in New Zealand is extremely flexible, so there's, there's no impediment to coming up with good legal frameworks to do whatever we want them to do. We just need to be talking about what we want them to do. So I'm pleased that we're talking about it. I was in New York uh, a few weeks ago, and um, uh, certainly the people at the conference were talking about it, but I'm, I'm not sure about parts of the rest of the country. I have a, a sense of optimism that, that councils around New Zealand are really concerned and wanting to act in the interests of their citizens. And I have an optimism, as Caroline's already said, that, that communities are already starting to talk about this amongst themselves and are starting to, to look for opportunities to do really great stuff. And some of this really great stuff is, might not seem to have much to do with climate change, but, but it's about building resilience, and that's what we're going to need. 
Time now for audience questions in this Otago University Symposium about how we are responding to the effects of climate change on our coastline. Um, so this may sound a bit silly, but I was wondering, what can normal people do to stop climate change? There is so much to do, um, both personally and collectively. I think the most important thing that everyone can do is talk to their neighbours and their friends about it. Um, don't be isolated and don't despair. There are many other things. Oh, well, I, I guess one thing is thinking about the way that our emissions. You know, when I'm talking about emissions, I'm saying if we're flying somewhere... We're releasing carbon into the atmosphere, and that's bad for climate change. So we need to consider the way we travel, and do we really need to go places? Can we do stuff actually uh, by not traveling? So as an academic, our, all of us travel prob probably way too much. Can we substitute some of that travel for other things? I mean, these days I spend most of my life on Zoom, which is like an <laughs> online way of seeing people on the screen and talking that way, and that's cutting down heaps of travel. So for me personally, I'm, I'm looking at the ways I can reduce the amount of air travel that I do. I'll just tell you two or three things that I think are really important. One of them is actually to eat a whole lot less meat because eating less meat is the single biggest impact you can have in your personal life unless you are a big flyer. If you fly internationally or to Perth or to, to the UK, you're blowing your greenhouse gas emissions out of the water. You, it's three or four times your household's emissions for a year. Um, so that's two big things. And I see a, a number of grey hairs around this room here. You've probably got investments. Think about where your money's invested. Can you talk to your superannuation scheme and say... I want to divest from fossil fuels and invest in positive alternatives. So there's three things. My suggestion would be to dream. I think humans are amazingly inventive, and I think that there may be uh, solutions out there that haven't even been thought of. So to someone uh, of your age, I'd say just dream big. Be the next Greta Thunberg. I'd like to thank my guests, Associate Professor Janet Stevenson, Dr Carolyn Orcheston, Dr. Ben France Hudson and Professor Lisa Ellis. These Otago University experts have been discussing how we are responding to the effects of climate change on our coastline. In the chair, I'm Guyan Espiner for RNZ.